You're listening to Protecting People, cybersecurity for the rest of us. Well, guys, I think we've had some time to think about what kind of cyber criminals we want to be. This is probably where we should say something like, previously on Protecting People. We already went over that, Ken. We're not doing that. All right. Well, how about if we did, I remember our last episode. In fact, I remember it as if it were yesterday. We're not doing that either. Mindy, can you just recap for us? Uh, (laughs) Sure. So we discussed what it takes to be a cyber criminal. And it turns out that the mastery of the human psyche is the most important skill that you can develop. Not exploits? Nope. Not programming skills? No. Not even a hoodie? Especially not a hoodie. Today, cyber attacks target people, not infrastructure. Most attacks need human interaction to work. So being a successful cyber attacker means understanding people and how they think. That's especially true in business email compromise, or BEC. You know, BEC might actually be a good place for us to start our cyber criminal careers. It's one of the fastest growing threats. It doesn't take a huge upfront investment and the payouts go straight into our bank accounts. I'm Liz Dennison. I'm Mindy Stubbs. And I'm Ken Spencer Brown. In this week's podcast, business email compromise, the big BEC. How to find the right targets. How to impersonate the people they trust. And how to get them to give you money. This is the second episode of How to Be a Cyber Criminal, our series delving into the mind of a cyber attacker. We're exploring how they think, how they work, and what they're after. Because sometimes to stop an attacker, you need to think like one. Let's get started. Now, remind us again, what is BEC? Why is it such a great option for us? Well, we posed those questions to Rob Holmes, VP and General Manager of Proofpoint Email Fraud Defense. Hi, Rob. So Mindy, Liz, and I want to start a cyber criminal enterprise, and I think we want to start with BEC attacks. How do we get started? Can you take us through the process? Sure. And best of luck on your your venture. So, yeah, I mean, this is really the most low-tech, high-impact of threats out there. So in terms of what you need, you don't need a great deal. I would would suggest that um, if you have access to the internet, um, you're probably 80% of the way there. All right. Awesome. So let's kind of play that through. BEC, business email compromise, a term coined by the FBI, is about kind of defrauding people, pretending to be somebody that they trust, be it an employee, a colleague, a friend, even a supplier, and uh, convincing them to part with money. And in terms of targeting companies, because BC can also kind of target individuals, gift card scams and such like. Um, but the biggest dollar losses targeting companies, wire transfer fraud. You had me at money. So should we focus our BEC attacks on large companies? So in sales, we talk about you got to eat rabbits whilst hunting elephants. And the same applies to the world of BEC. So, um, uh, you know, we've got quite a lot of research to suggest that um, companies of all sizes targeted. So, you know, the, you know literally the, the rank correlation between the frequency with which a customer is hit, a company is hit, and the um, size of that company, there's no correlation at all, like in, in kind of spearman rank correlation terms. Um, uh, so, um, so that gives you a, a data point that illustrates the fact that I am obviously looking for the big payout, the $123 million payout. 
but how many companies write checks for that amount of money? And I will say it was the number of checks. It was something like seven incremental payments, I think, top of my head. But for the really big payouts, you want to go go big or go home. But you might also argue that, um, and I think rightfully so, you might argue that generally speaking, those companies will have better controls in place. So for example, of you know, kind of banks, just their, their product is uh, services, financial services. And so they, ha- they have to have strong controls. So whilst I think they're still targeted, they're probably less likely to cough up funds. Compared to your mom and pop shop in Toronto, Canada, that sells marble countertops, they just can't afford the level of security. So I think that, that uh, you know, probably it's an 80-20. I would say that the, that the baddies are getting 80% of their revenues from the smaller companies. So how would a BEC attack work? Can you take us through the steps? So let's uh, imagine that you are in the healthcare business and you run the accounts payable team. And I'm going to jump on to uh, my, uh, I'm going to jump on open browser, go to linkedin.com and I'm going to search for your pharmaceutical company or whatever, healthcare company. And I'm going to search for people in the accounts payable team. And Ken is going to pop up. So I now have a target. I know that Ken can move money. Wait, how did I suddenly become the victim in this scenario? I think he's just being realistic. So what's next? So now I need to figure out, okay, how am I going to approach that person? How am I going to approach Ken? I have various options, but fundamentally, I'm going to pretend to be somebody that, that you trust. So I could pretend to be a colleague. I could maybe break into uh, compromise an account of a colleague of yours, or even I could try and break into your account, which would be even worse. Equally, I could pretend to be one of your known suppliers. So I could go to Google and I could look up your healthcare company and I could maybe find some information about some new deal, some new contract, building a new wing of hospital. The contract was awarded to a local construction company um, and uh, work has just started. So I now know, I, I know who I should target and I also know some trusted parties um, that I might seek to impersonate or compromise. Now I know who to target. I know who I need to impersonate. What now? I am then sending an email to Ken saying, hey, are you there? Or, hey, about last month's invoice, and uh, which hasn't been paid yet. And I enter into a dialogue and eventually I'm, I ask you to update your bank details or my, our bank details, or I might ask you to um, make payment to some bank, the, the Agricultural Bank of China or what have you. So it's really a social engineering thing. I don't have to be tech smart. I have to be socially engineering smart. We should probably pause here to explain what social engineering is. Yeah, so social engineering is the science of getting people to do what you want them to do, a big part of BEC attacks. We've all gotten those Nigerian prince emails. Oh, I wouldn't be gullible enough to fall for one of those. Not again. Well, there are more advanced techniques, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Trust me, some of these social engineering techniques are so good. You'd open the email before you even finish reading the subject line. Well, before we get into that, let's talk about ways to disguise your email. Here's Rob again. Yeah, the easiest way and uh, the easiest way of doing this is to, you could even do this yourself. 
log into your Gmail account and go into the settings of that account. And in one of the settings, you can edit your display name. And your display name, um, so if I send you an email, you don't necessarily see our homes at proofpoint.com, you see Robert Holmes. And that is your display name. And in most webmail clients, you can edit the display name with impunity. So I can change that to anything? So you could today log into your Gmail account and edit the display name to be Citibank or American Express or construction vendor or uh, who's building the, the new wing of the hospital. And then when you send emails to that person in accounts payable, um, they don't necessarily see because the email client might not render the full email address. Um, they now see Citibank. They need to see American Express. So that's the simplest. Um, but it, the, um, and that, that is actually the most prevalent as well. What are some of the other techniques I can use? One of them is that, so I can actually essentially edit the from field to be precisely the address of that trusted individual. So be it a supplier or be it employee, I could literally send an email pretending to be Gary at proofpoint.com. Because um, if you look at section 7.1 of, of the SMTP spec, it starts, and this is actually verbatim, it starts, it's a, the security paragraph, and it says, SMTP mail is inherently insecure, which doesn't insert you with a great deal of confidence. Um, and uh, it goes on to describe that anyone can pretend to be anyone. So, and if I can pretend to be anyone, then maybe I'm going to pretend to be Donald Trump at thewhitehouse.gov or Gary at proofpoint.com. As in our very own CEO. That's right. SMTP is short for Simple Mail Transfer Protocol. It's an email framework that's been around almost 40 years, and almost everyone uses to this day to send and receive email between systems. SMTP is older than I am. Me too. You too, right, Ken? (sighs) Moving on. What Rob is describing here is called domain spoofing. It's basically stealing someone's digital identity. And once you've done that, there are a lot of ways to take advantage of anyone who trusts that person. If you got an email from our CEO asking you to do something, you'd probably do it, right? Fortunately, there are ways to prevent domain spoofing. We have email authentication standards that kind of retrofit email with security. But the problem is not everyone uses them. And that leads us to another kind of impersonation, lookalike domains. Here's Rob again. So the beauty of the lookalike is that if I can figure out who your supplier is and I can register a a lookalike of that domain, then I can both send email from that domain and receive email at that domain because I control the DNS of it. And uh, so lookalikes and lookalike and domain spoofing don't necessarily account for a large proportion of the total number of threats, but they do account for a large proportion of those threats which translate to large financial losses. This sounds promising. Yeah. So here's how lookalike domains work. Let's say you run a travel agency. Let's call it Mindy's Travel. Apparently, this scenario takes place in 2019. (laughs) Apparently. So first, we register the web domain mindystravel.com. Let's see if it's available. We'll do a search on godaddy.com, mindystravel.com, and it is available. So that's your web domain. That's your website address and the domain for all of your email, travel confirmations, billings, communication with all those corporate clients and so on. So far, so good. 
Okay, and so here's where it gets interesting. Then I go and register the domain ministraveli.com, and I'm using an uppercase I instead of the L. So computers see that it has completely different domains, uh, so nothing seems amiss. So I'm going to try that, see if mindystraveli.com is available. And it is available. So that's my domain. So now I could do all sorts of bad things. How much does it cost to register a lookalike domain? About 10 bucks, same as any other domain. So now I can send Mindy's customers fake invoices and have them wire all the money they owe her to me. Hey, that's not nice. That's the life we signed up for, Mindy. Now, there's another kind of impersonation called email account compromise. We're going to talk more about that in our next episode. But for now, let's just say this is an incredibly potent form of deception that every aspiring cyber criminal should consider. So these techniques are mostly technical in nature. Where does social engineering come in? Good question, Liz. Here's Rob again. I think the entry point needs to be sufficiently innocuous that it doesn't raise the alarm bells. And um, ideally, if you can... If you've a compromised account, you can actually slot yourself into an existing thread. That's, that's kind of ideal. Um, but if you're having to start a new thread, then there are some tricks. One of the tricks that we see is the fake chain. So if you, if you haven't got a, the coattails of an existing email thread to implant yourself in and insert yourself in, um, well, why don't you just invent your own thread? Make up your own email history, as it were, where you build up a stack of exchanges between you and the CEO, pretending to be the lawyers. Oh, Gary, hey, remember, we're doing this deal. And yep, absolutely. How much was it again? Gary says to the lawyers, the lawyers say, oh, it's $100,000. Oh, yeah. And you just, you just ed- you treat your email client as, an e- as just a text editor. And you build this history out. And then in the subject header, in your last email at the top of this fake chain, you say, you say something like, okay, and uh, I'll, just, I'll just now contact Ken in accounts payable and make this happen. Now you edit the, the subject field to be FW. Okay, so when you read it, Ken, you're going to think, oh, this was forwarded to me. It wasn't. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and the subject is like payment of deal, blah, blah, blah. And you now receive that email. You, it looks like a, the, the sending identity has been spoofed, but it looks like Gary. It looks like the CEO. Um, the subject header looks as though it's been forward. And the email thread is saying everything that I expected, which is that I'm meant to pay somebody for something or other. Well, haters, it looks like my English degree is actually going to come in handy here. And, you know, a little creativity, you know, if you can figure out who their lawyers are. So one scam that I see used a lot is when auditors are used. Like, so I see KPMG mentioned a lot and Deloitte and PwC. And now, and that, now kind of point to the coup de grace. So trust is amplified when you have multi, multi-band reinforcement of something. So that sense. That sounds tough. What is I, what I really mean by that? Okay, so if you're traveling um, to uh, to the UK and you're using your uh, American bank card in the UK, and your bank didn't know that you were in the UK. By the way, you can't go to the UK right now. Just uh, save that for post COVID. Yeah, yeah. um, <laughs> but uh, uh, but but if you're traveling in a country that your your bank wasn't aware of, 
um, and you're trying to process something, what are they going to do? They might call you and take you out of band. And, and, and um, now you've got to be careful there because sometimes you ever get this where somebody calls you and say, I'm calling from Microsoft Global customer support and you your computer has been infected whoa, whoa, whoa hang on a second i now need to take you out of band so i'm going to go to google and i'm going to find a, a number that i can call etc cetera, etc cetera. so this is the notion of like of in-band and out-of-band confirmations um and um you really kind of want to take for, for the greatest trust you need to go go kind of multi-band any other tips the, your second pointer um, to make this uh, social engineering attack really cool is you put in your email, pretending to be the CEO or whatever, you say, but don't pay anything yet because I'm just finalizing the details. You'll hear from our lawyer. He's got your number and he'll give you a call. And then five minutes later, your phone goes and it's the lawyer that you were expecting to hear from. Yeah. And it's like, it's, like, uh, it's like one of those great old movies. One of my favorite movies is The Sting. And it's just like, uh, it's just such an awesome movie. And it just, like, you're really kind of conning the person. And, and, and you expected to get that phone call. And you did get that phone call. So you've now reinforced and, and eliminated any suspicions that I had that this may be bad. And look, you know, we're in the cybersecurity business, right? So we have a heightened sense of paranoia about this. But does mo- do most people in, in accounts payable or finance or other divisions of the company operate with that same level of paranoia? I think not. So the key to a successful BEC attack is social engineering, knowing how people think and exploiting that to your advantage. Hacking human nature. For more on that, we spoke to one of our colleagues from our security awareness business. So I'm Mike Bailey. I do product marketing for ProofPoint, uh, specifically the security awareness training group. I've been with the company for two years, and I was with uh, Wombat Security prior for four years, so I started back in 2014. Um, And so it's been really interesting to see how companies are kind of training their users and making them more resilient against today's most sophisticated attacks. What are some of the most effective ways cyber criminals prey on human psychology? Fear. Fear is is, is a big one. Imagine you're, you know, you're working with a lender. In fact, I just went through this process a few months ago with my house. You know, there you have to go through all these actions in real estate, right? You have to get the inspection. You have to do the follow up. You have to they check your financial records. They send you something and they say, you know, we really need this inf- this account information now, right? Like to your your savings account or your investment account, or you know, we may not be able to get this loan to go through. Well. Get- Guess what? If I receive that, I'm thinking, wow, okay, I really need to take action. Uh, And that's a perfect fear to prey on. That's an interesting example from the consumer side. But as aspiring cyber criminals, we're really more interested in industrial scale fraud. Right. We all expect consumers to be a little less tech savvy. What kind of social engineering techniques work on businesses? Well, think of how if your boss sent you a note right? And said, hey, you know, we, we really need the de- details of this. We need to make a payment. If that person is a CFO title, if somebody's account was breached that is at that level or VP level or something along those lines, imagine if you were in the seat of that person and somebody reached out to you and said, hey, you know, we need to get this wired ASAP. 
by the end of the day, right? It, it impacts our, our quarterly financials, right? We need to get it done. That really changes a perspective, right? Um, you're in a professional workplace setting. If you don't have a set of backup, you know, go through this process to validate um, somebody acts like it's essential that you, you can fall victim to it. Um, and like you said, the example is it's not just uh, grandmothers in Iowa. And I think the how attackers are using that is they're, they're making their attacks more sophisticated. They're, they're using people you know. They're using situations they know you are in from data that they have in order to be successful um, rather than just a generic, hey, we need money or, you know, you got a speeding ticket, pay this fine here um, type of attack. Mike, are there any other elements of social engineering that we should be thinking about? I would say beyond fear, it, it really just is about personalization. Mm. If, 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 like if, a, if you were an attacker and you do your research, the likelihood of you being successful dramatically increases as you put in people they know, you talk about the company, you put in those types of references to any sort of information that's public, publicly available and tie together that story in a way that makes people take action. And, and every day people are using new social networks and posting new information about their personal lives. You can probably see a lot about a younger person versus an older person. And so that's going to continuously change because you, you have somebody in their 20s or their 30s, they probably have a multitude of online accounts. They probably post a lot of personal details about their life, what they do, where they're at. Whereas people that are retiring or maybe leaving the workforce, those people probably are not doing that quite as much as a younger generation. So you're going to see that shift continue and, and make it easier for attackers to personalize and make something seem very genuine uh, that is not. Have you seen any generational difference in what works with people at different ages? So I think the common theme is that when millennials grew up with technology or, or you know, they should know better. But we, when we were doing research, we found that that wasn't true. It was kind of on a per channel basis. So for instance, People that were older uh, outside the millennial group understood what phishing was more so than millennials. But millennials understood what vishing was and smishing was more than those older age groups. And so it is a, it is a little bit of, you know, you think they're tech savvy, but they may just not be familiar with work email if they're in their 20s and they just got out of college and what the implications are there. But they've received those fake attacks on social media or phone calls or uh, SMS messages. Yeah. And so I think the channel actually has a lot to do with it and what, per- what people perceive as safe versus unsafe. And I, and I think the example of social media is kind of interesting because maybe this is just my experience. I'd be curious what other people think. The attacks I get on social media are a lot more generic than anything I've ever encountered on email. I probably encountered just a a few emails that have truly been phishing emails and they were very sophisticated. But the attacks on social media that I've received so far were kind of pretty obvious. (laughs) As the Gen Xer in the group, I'd like to know what phishing and smishing are. Ken, you don't know what those are. I don't know. It sounds like some kind of crazy millennial thing to me. TikTok, Facebook, whatever you guys use. (laughs) 
So vishing is voicemail phishing. So essentially anybody that calls you and tries to extract information, whereas smishing is phishing through SMS. So that could be a link, you know, you, you want a free iPad or a gift card or whatever, or it could also be just somebody maybe starting a conversation trying to obtain information from you. Like, oh, this is, you know, Carrie's friend. And she said that, you know, you needed help with your uh, real estate. I'm a realtor. I just need to get some info from you to get started. One day it was, I think it was 6.30 PM Eastern. Uh, and I was going to grab dinner. And I got a call from a Sunnyvale voice number. And Sunnyvale is the headquarters of Proofpoint. And, and I'm in Pittsburgh. And I thought, hmm, okay, well, you know, maybe somebody is calling me here. Maybe it is urgent uh, for work. I don't think I had the, our messaging app on my phone at the time. I pick up and they say, is, uh, is this uh, Mike Bailey? And I said, yeah, who is this? And they hung up. So, you know, I think that's a perfect example of attackers trying to just gain information and gain an understanding of people and do their research on targeted attacks. And I can tell you, I did not answer my phone at all since from any number, regardless of the zip code or who I thought it could be. And the answer is always to just let it go to voicemail. So I guess that rules out Mike is our next victim. Guys, if we really want to do some damage, I think we're going to have to step it up a notch. I think we're going to have to launch email account compromise attacks. I guess that's why they call you Mindy the Menace. They don't call her that. Mindy the Mangler? (laughs) No. Malicious Mindy? Mindy the Mortician? Mindy the Monster? Oh my gosh, are you done? No. Merciless Mindy. Okay, we can tell you worked on this. In our next episode, we talk about email account compromise. How to take over someone's account, what you can do with it, and why it's so effective in today's cloud-first world. You've been listening to Protecting People, a podcast by Proofpoint. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening.